Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage. Hong Kong during the Cold War was a listening post for both mainland and western spies. It was the Berlin of Asia. In this week's programme, I'm joined by Associate Professor Priscilla Roberts, who's the co-editor of the book Hong Kong in the Cold War, where a series of writers tell the story of Hong Kong from 1949 until the mid-1970s, when, after the visit of President Richard Nixon to Beijing and the death of Chairman Mao Zedong in 1976, led to more rapprochement. I begin by asking Priscilla Roberts to tell me how long she feels the Cold War was in this part of the world. At least one historian has suggested that in Asia, the Cold War ended in the 1970s when China embarked on a rapprochement with the United States. Yes, it would almost be shorter here. But, I mean, if we go from 1947 in terms of Hong Kong and you have Alexander Grantham becoming the governor and uh, in the book Hong Kong in the Cold War, it's suggested that Alexander Grantham pretty much set the tone in Hong Kong for the Cold War. He has, in fact, been the subject of a very interesting article by Cheek Wan Mark and he was regarded as the classic Cold War governor in many ways. It was during his time, in 1949, of course, that China went communist, and Grantham, more than anybody else, had the responsibility of setting policies towards China in Hong Kong. What the rules of engagement or disengagement were going to be, because what you have to understand is that at any time from October 1949 onwards, the Chinese could simply have rolled across the border and taken Hong Kong. And whatever kind of impression Hong Kong, the Hong Kong government, the Hong Kong garrison tried to give, and they did try to give it, of being prepared to take on the Chinese, in reality, it was pretty clear that should this happen, then it was going to be no contest. The British would probably focus on evacuating Hong Kong, getting the British out. The Americans would do the same. There might be a bit of fighting, a few engagements, but it wasn't going to take very long and it was only going to be a holding action. Hong Kong, last remaining western outpost in China, is threatened. For the second time in eight years, an invader is at the city gates. Yet as these special rush pictures show, the city is calm, there is no panic. Although the victorious Red Armies have reached the Crown Colony's border, the 17-mile-long frontier into China is still open. The Kowloon Ferry, which connects Hong Kong with the mainland, is still operating. The only visible sign that the Civil War is only an hour away lies in the newspapers, used by Fifth Column agents to cover their spreading of the new Chinese Communist flag. British reinforcements have been streaming into Hong Kong for several months. The garrison is now up to strength. Each man has been put on a war footing. All leave is cancelled, and forward troops, among them Argyle and Sutherland Highlanders, are standing too. Like the army, the RAF too is on a 24-hour alert. From the colony's only airport, Kai Tak, on the mainland, first-line Spitfire squadrons are making two-hourly patrol flights over this small but vital piece of British territory. Experienced observers in the colony do not think that the communists will attempt to cross the frontier. They believe that the Reds need Hong Kong as a trading center. 
Nevertheless, British troops take up long-prepared positions and are ready for any emergency. The field headquarters of the 40th Division is moving up to the border area. Hong Kong is ready. There will be no repeat of the 1941 surrender this time. Britain was decolonizing elsewhere around Asia at the time. They didn't have the resources to spare for Hong Kong. In fact, at one point in the mid-1950s, there was talk of withdrawing the entire garrison, and Grantham fought that because he felt that there had to be at least some indication that the British were still prepared to fight for Hong Kong. But it was providing psychological reassurance, not real defence. Sir Alexander Grantham remained governor here for two terms. He was actually a a decade, which was very rare for a governorship. And in your book and elsewhere, I get the feeling that he really did serve Hong Kong's interests. And he always had this difficulty of this balance of trying to also serve London and serve Washington, or rather that, that London and Washington were in cahoots sometimes at Grantham's expense. I mean, an early example of that is how to deal with all these aircraft that were here. If you can explain to me first, how did the, there was a whole load of aircraft that ended up in Hong Kong and uh, and then it was being decided what to do with them. But how did they get here in the first place? I think that they were flown to Hong Kong towards the end of the Chinese Civil War. They were flown out of China by Claire Chenot and his uh, pilots who had previously been the Flying Tigers and landed in what they thought was safe territory in Hong Kong. And then both mainland China and the Republic of China on Taiwan laid claim to these aircraft. Strictly speaking, they probably belonged to mainland China, but the Republic of China on Taiwan was also laying claim to them. And the Hong Kong government came under extremely strong pressure from the United States to release these aircraft to Chiang Kai-shek on Taiwan and not let the mainland, which was a fighting case through the Hong Kong courts, be able to take them back. I think that the government of Hong Kong would have preferred to hand them quietly over to China, not the pilots, but the planes. But the London government was under a great deal of pressure. The courts were generally deciding in favour of the mainland. And so I think that the British ultimately just passed an order in council that said that these belonged to Taiwan. And they did so not out of any particular love for Chiang Kai-shek, but because they were under pressure from the United States. And Britain needed help from the United States in a large number of other areas, which were a higher priority than Hong Kong and its interests, quite honestly. It is interesting how, as you say, you have this triangle of basically Washington, London, and then Hong Kong, and Hong Kong being at the centre of that, but not always having its interests met by the other two. And of course, America is in full Cold War mode of anti-communism, and so for decades would recognise Taiwan only, as in the nationalists, and of course Beijing would be ignored by the United Nations and and many other institutions. So we have to think back to that kind of mentality. Also, here in Hong Kong, it's described in the book Hong Kong in the Cold War as rather like, in certain ways, rather like Berlin, as being at this centre of espionage. Oh, absolutely. The United States did not at this point, as you said, 
have any kind of diplomatic facilities in China. So the Hong Kong consulate expanded to be at one stage the largest American diplomatic facility in the world. And a lot of that was because such China watchers as the U.S. diplomatic service had were sitting in Hong Kong interviewing anybody who came out of the mainland, listening in to mainland radio when they could, getting any publications that came out of the mainland, and trying to find out what they could about what was happening in China. And the United States really did not have very much idea what was going on in China. They kept their embassy and consulates. They were still going late 49, early 50, but then everything was closed down, certainly by the time that the Korean War began. And so Hong Kong was the great site for the United States to do its China watching from. It was also somewhere where China could spy on the West and get at least some sense of what was happening in Western policy towards China, uh, possibly even conduct discrete talks with people of different nationalities who did not necessarily have embassies in Beijing. So what was the representation in Hong Kong? Was that just in the form of Xinhua, which was Xinhua News Agency? There was Xinhua, the Dagong Bao. There was also the Bank of China and other mainland Chinese banks, China resources. These were all mainland Chinese-owned businesses. You must remember that Hong Kong was a center for money laundering and trade between China and the outside world. We don't, of course, know quite how many of the refugees who came out of China were actually espionage operatives. Uh, certainly, as mentioned in Governor Grantham's memoirs, at some point, Special Branch realized that one of his bodyguards and security staff was actually a Chinese spy who was no doubt reporting back to Beijing everything that went on. And we don't know how many of those informal spies there were. And particularly in the early Cold War, there was also a good deal of coming and going across the border. Um, it was somewhat porous in both ways. There was a very big batch of ex-nationalist soldiers who came out in 1949 and 1950, and they were first in a camp on Mount Davis Road, then they were relocated to what would later become Rennie's Mill and was at that stage very remote. Rennie's Mill had been a mill, wasn't it? It had been a mill at some stage and they were put in a camp out of harm's way, so to speak. The expectation at first was that they would all go to Taiwan, but Taiwan, for whatever reason, didn't want to take all of these. And so a lot of them became a nationalist readout in Hong Kong from then until 1997 and there were certain rules of engagement the Hong Kong government would tolerate their having loyalties to Taiwan as long as these did not get out of hand and what you must understand is that in the 1950s there were sometimes fights breaking out in Hong Kong between pro-communist and pro-nationalist elements pro-communist businessmen were murdered by nationalist sympathizers. And one thing that Grantham and his successors were very keen on 
was not to have anything going on in Hong Kong that would be too provocative to China. They didn't want the Chinese civil war continuing on the streets of Hong Kong. And so all these different forces had to work out some kind of equilibrium whereby Hong Kong could continue to function. The same kind of thing happened when Chinese Yu was set up. Grantham and his successors in the British government, when they realized that Chinese Yu was getting quite a lot of funding from Taiwan, they wanted that cut back on. They were prepared to allow Chinese Yu to get funding through cutouts. Cutout? Not directly from the CIA, but through CIA-funded organizations such as the Asia Foundation and the Mencius Foundation. But they did not want it to become a readout for pro-Taiwan forces, pro-nationalist forces. And so all the time, the British government was doing this great balancing act. And every October the 1st and then October the 10th, there would be rival celebrations of the two Chinese national days, which again, sometimes fights broke out on the October the 10th ones. There there were certainly riots in the mid-1950s on at least one of those October the 10th ones, which the police suppressed. Those pro-nationalists who were too pro-nationalist were deported to Taiwan, sometimes after a stay in one of Her Majesty's prisons. Mm -hmm. They would actually be deported from Hong Kong if they got on more or less quietly with their lives and weren't too provocative, then the British government would tolerate what they were doing. From from the mainland Chinese perspective, was Hong Kong at times seen throughout this Cold War period, uh, was uh, Hong Kong seen as a sort of treaty port? Uh, I think that's a very good analogy. Uh, A treaty port under British administration provided that the British did not do anything that was too provocative to China. The reasons for it were, first of all, economic. A great deal of China's foreign exchange came through Hong Kong. A great deal of China's foreign trade was financed through Hong Kong. And Hong Kong itself was a market for China, as well as an entrepot for trade. Where did Hong Kong's food and indeed its water come from, and many of its supplies. So even when the border is shut, the food and the water still comes? Yes. There was trade going on all the time. This in many ways annoyed the United States, which, with the onset of the Korean War, imposed a very strict trade embargo indeed on China. If you were a U.S. tourist and you went shopping in Chinese mainland-owned stores in Hong Kong, you were liable to have what your trinkets or whatever you'd bought confiscated by U.S. Customs when you got back to the United States. And the United States was trying to cut off China's supplies of all sorts of strategic materials that could be used, particularly in war or for military purposes. And so there was a very strict trade embargo, oddly enough stricter than that on the Soviet Union. Very strict trade controls were imposed in 1950 to 1951. They had a huge impact on Hong Kong, a very bad economic impact indeed. The Hong Kong economy turned right down in 1951 and 1952 because of 
the embargoes that uh, the United States insisted be imposed not just on exports of Chinese goods to the rest of the world, but also on imports. And if you were a U.S. ally, then you came under very strong pressure from the United States to cut off all trade with China in a very wide range of strategic materials. And so Hong Kong, which had served as one of the main ports for China, was terribly badly affected by this, both in terms of exports and also of imports. The United States did not particularly approve of Hong Kong, certainly at this time, because Hong Kong businessmen were suspected, probably quite justly, of doing all that they could to break that embargo and to smuggle goods to China. And, of course, Hong Kong has a very long coastline and lots of islands. The United States tried almost to treat Hong Kong's customs as, if you like, an extension of U.S. customs, and some of these people who were sitting in the U.S. consulate were, in fact, there to try and police Hong Kong's trade with China in both directions and see that China was denied access both to strategic materials and also to its outside markets. What people often do not quite seem to realize is that from June of 1950, I think for Britain, July, of 1950 up to June of 1953. British troops were fighting in Korea, which meant that after the Chinese came in around November, British troops were fighting Chinese soldiers in Korea. Yet the arrangements for Hong Kong continued throughout this period. There was a kind of fig leaf to this on both sides. Great Britain never went to war in Korea. Britain contributed forces to a UN peacekeeping force in Korea. China never went to war in Korea. A number of units of the People's Liberation Army were so overcome with sympathy for their comrades in North Korea that they all went and volunteered to fight in North Korea. Now, if you'll believe that, you'll believe anything. But the legal fiction was preserved throughout those almost three years when China was at war with both the United States and Britain. Isn't it interesting, all these different, as you say, different arrangements, different machinations. Also, what I, th I think is interesting is post-49, you also have moving down from Shanghai are some of the still the key, what became key business empires in, mm -hmm. in Hong Kong. Some of those business families were not unsympathetic to China. They almost seem to continue on representing China here. Well, I think that's probably very true. They got their assets out of China, which at that time was perhaps not entirely friendly to capitalism. But then China needed to continue to trade and deal with the outside world. And so they set themselves up as intermediaries with the rest of the world, with perhaps the Western banks in Hong Kong and the networks that they accessed, with the overseas financial and economic networks that spread throughout Southeast Asia. So these networks always continued in some kind of operation. They were, of course, somewhat hostage to the vagaries of Chinese communist politics, which, as we all know, were faction-ridden 
and extremely complicated during this period. But basically, China continued to trade with the outside world. In the late 1950s, they actually set up the Canton Trade Fair, held twice a year, just up the road from Hong Kong. And that actually continued even during the year of the Hong Kong riots. Premier Zhou Enlai made a special trip down from Beijing to persuade radicals in South China that they were not to disrupt the Canton Trade Fair, that it must go on. Hong Kong, a tourist paradise for duty-free shoppers. The international airport is a busy place. In fact, all Hong Kong is busy. Huge apartments house some of the population, but many live on junks and sandpans in the harbour itself. More than four million people live here, 99% of them Chinese. And China, communist China, lies only a few miles away just across the border. On one side, a British colony. On the other, Red China. It's on this border that ten policemen have been killed in the past few days in clashes with communist mobs. A police outpost on the border. The clashes of the past few days have been isolated instances, for Hong Kong has a reputation as one of the world's most peaceful and law-abiding countries. And a drive through the new territories to look into communist China has always been a favourite tourist attraction. There's the border, a fence running along the edge of a river. Beyond it, some chun in communist China. East and West really meet right here. Now, there were one or two matters on which the British government and communist China came to see eye to eye after the Sino-Soviet split. I mean, I remember this all with farming and tractors. I mean, I know it was many other things, but I mean, uh, science, for example. But uh, China and the Soviet Union as two communist states or empires, really, they basically cooperated for quite some time. Uh-huh until sometime around 1960. And Western observers at first doubted if there really was a Soviet split, but then it became apparent that there was. And so there were one or two efforts by the Soviets to set up some kind of business facility in Hong Kong, or even to buy into a building project in Hong Kong. And this was one of the few occasions when I think everybody involved saw eye to eye. The British government did not want the Soviets in Hong Kong. The US government didn't want the Soviets there. The mainland Chinese and the nationalists and the local Hong Kong administration, all of them were extremely unkeen on the idea of having the Soviets come along in any capacity, whether they opened up some kind of economic trade office or opening a consulate. They just didn't want them there. They didn't want them buying into local businesses and getting a toehold. And so for once in the 60s and 70s and indeed into the 80s everybody saw eye to eye keep the Russians out (laughs) way out on Hong Kong Island beyond Stanley there was actually a government GCHQ subsidiary espionage monitoring uh, facility communications facility that was spying on China and Vietnam this continued in operation throughout both the Korean War and the Vietnam War 
And in the Vietnam War, China was providing aid and assistance to Vietnam, even though it didn't get into the Vietnam War. At the same time, as Chi Quan Mark's chapter tells the story, many of the American servicemen were coming into Hong yes. Kong on R&R during the Vietnam War. I can't help wondering, in the bars, brothels, etc., um, in Wan Chai, how many of those bar girls and bartenders were actually communist spies and how much of the money they spent in Hong Kong was actually ending up in mainland Chinese coffers in a perfect example of recycling. My thanks to Priscilla Roberts, an associate professor at the City University of Macau. She's the co-editor of Hong Kong in the Cold War, published by Hong Kong University Press. I'm going to leave you with some newsreel of the world-changing visit of then US President Richard Nixon to Beijing in 1972. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage. Christen the spirit of 76, taxis to a stop on the runway of the Peking airport. And Premier Zhou Enlai moves forward to greet the first American president to set foot on Chinese soil. East meets West as a handshake bridges 16,000 miles and 22 years of hostility. There are no welcoming speeches, no formal ceremonies, just a receiving line made up of Communist Party officials and the military band playing the Star-Spangled Banner. diplomatically correct, are quickly over, and the president and premier are soon on their way. For President Nixon, a sudden change in schedule, a surprise meeting with Mao Zedong, an honor last bestowed during the first day of a state visit on former premier Nikita Khrushchev. Dr. Henry Kissinger sits in on the talks that are animated, constructive, and frank. At the summit, face-to-face, two leaders who direct the destiny of one out of three persons on the earth. The gate to friendly contact, says Joe and Lai, has finally been opened. And always urgently, the world rolls on. Time passes. Ten thousand years are too long. Seize the day. Seize the hour. This is the hour. This is the day. President Nixon and Premier Joe meet four times for a total of more than eight hours. 
We cannot close the gulf between us, the president tells Joe, but we can try to bridge it and continue to talk across it. Highlight of the historic journey, a visit to the Great Wall. Once designed to keep Mongolian warriors from overrunning the frontiers of ancient China, the wall snakes across the countryside for 1,684 miles. A people that can build a wall like this, the president says, certainly have a great past to be proud of. As we look on this wall, Mr. Nixon adds, we do not want walls of any kind between people.